Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. Hello, students. These are your morning announcements. Did you know that Feminist Summer School is now in session? It's true. Feminist Summer School is a thing. We've created it. It's going to be way more fun than summer school might sound to you. Although, honestly, I was the kind of nerd in high school who also liked summer school. (laughs) But Feminist Summer School is going to be incredible. It is happening inside the clutch during the entire month of August. If you join the clutch by July 31st, 2023, you get to enjoy special bonus trainings and classes from our clutch coaches on fun, joy, pleasure, and how to have an amazing summer that aligns with your feminist values, helps you experience more relaxation, ease, and pleasure without all of that guilt and shame that the patriarchy tries to instill in us. It will teach you how to ride that breezy summer feeling all year long using your mind. We've all heard summer's a state of mind, and that is a state of mind that you can learn to create all year long. Having fun, relaxing, resting, playing, experiencing fun and joy and pleasure, those are things that are your birthright and that the patriarchy teaches you and socializes you to fear, feel guilty about, or ruin with your own brain. (laughs) We are going to undo all that bullshit damage. We are going to have incredible trainings. We're going to have fun challenges. We're even going to have a recess because we love a theme and we commit. So I would love to have you join us for Feminist Summer School Inside the Clutch. Again, all during the month of August. You just need to join the clutch by July 31st in order to participate. To get the link, text your email address to plus one three four seven nine three four eight eight six one. You don't need a code word or anything. You'll just get the link straight away. Again, text your email to plus one three four seven nine three four eight eight six one. Or you can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash summer. I can't wait. Get your cutest bikini, get that SPF, get a frosty drink, and let's get down. All right. Hello, my chickens. Welcome. I am so excited for this conversation. I get a lot of pitches for the podcast, and my PR person used me to be like, eh, eh, eh. And then I saw this one. I was like, yes, immediately. Let's go. I want to talk about this. So I'm here with Ebony Janice. So she has an amazing new book called All the Black Girls Are Activists, A Fourth Wave Womanist Pursuit of Dreams as Radical Resistance. I was like, if the internet had tried to put together a title that would make me want to talk to somebody, that was going to be like, this is the only pitch I've ever gotten with womanist in the title. And I was like, yes, let's talk about it. Okay. So I'm going to let Ebony Janice tell us a little bit about herself. Tell us what you think we should know about you and kind of how you came to write this book. Yeah, I am Ebony Janice, and I do go by Ebony Janice. And I am a Black girl whisperer, which is basically all of my work is just centering Black women and girls. Because I feel like I should be centered, I haven't historically had an experience where wherever it was that I was or whatever I was doing, that I was centered as the authority, that I was centered as the person that should be being considered. And so my life's work is that, is to center Black women and Black girls. 
And the beauty of that is that when Black women and Black girls are well, then everybody else is taken care of. So, and I always include that that part of the spiel because, you know, we live in an anti-Black society, so people can sometimes feel some kind of way about, what do you mean you center Black women and girls? So yeah, that feels very important to who it is that I am. I have a degree in political science and cultural anthropology and a master's of art and social change with an emphasis on spiritual and religious leadership, which sounds made up, but it's a real thing. And so my <laughs> I'm a life coach, so nothing. I went from being a law professor type to a life coach, so nothing sounds made up. Yeah, yeah. I was tickled by it when I first saw it. I was like, is this a scam? Is this just about to be a little certificate at the end of this? <laughs> really <laughs> like, we printed this out at Kinko's. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm paying this like grad school Berkeley amount of money and they're just going to give me a certificate that says you talked about justice. But no, it's a real thing. And I just introduced that to the conversation as well, because my life's work, you know, like I said, has been centering Black women and girls, but I've been deeply invested in the politics of, you know, humanity and thinking about things from a super scientific kind of you know, anthropology is like science, but also a deeply spiritual background. And so I feel like that's the cutest little intro to who it is that I am. I like it. (laughs) You've already touched on so many things I want to talk about. Like, first of all, just the fact that certainly Black people, other marginalized people, women always have to frame any ask for themselves as being like, it'll be good for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like women have to, like, and I have this too, even in trying to speak to women about like, why it's important to fill their own cup. I always have to be like, listen, your cup actually just matters because it's your cup. But yes, also you will show up with more patience as a mom or whatever. So I just feel like even that like container that we have to do that in, right, is such a sign of how we're socialized that like women and other marginalized people, and especially I think black people in America are socialized that like, even to ask for like, any focus on you, you have to be like, it's gonna be good for everybody. Everybody will be fine. Yeah, no, it's a practice for me to not include that from time. Mm -hmm. But I also see the importance of it and the value of it because I'm not interested in really talking to allies or trying to convince people to become allies, but it does feel important to say, listen, your actual liberation is bound up in mine. And so you don't have really the privilege even of turning your eyes or your ears away from these kinds of conversations because you're not even all the way free yet. You're not even all the way well yet. Right. It is true that it, like what you're saying is true that it is better for everybody. It's also just so striking that we kind of feel like we have to preface it with that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So I wanted to, I'm like already off my list of questions because I want to talk about so, so much of you said. I would love to talk about this authority because I feel like this is something that I teach and work on a lot on how like damaging it is and how insidious it is that women and marginalized people and people of color are socialized to not see themselves as an authority, even on their own lives, right? And like when you make a list of all the things that women are told they don't know how to do for themselves, like look at a women's, it's like what to wear, what to eat, what hair looks good for your face, what lip color should you be wearing, how do you parent, when should you eat, should you exercise, how much, like you can't even, before you get out the door in the morning, there's 50 things you've been told, you like literally can't decide for yourself. So I'd love to hear you talk about how you see that specifically reflected for black women and girls and and kind of how to start shifting some mindset stuff around that. Yeah, I used to write poetry all the time. I still write poetry from time, but I used to be, you know, a performance poet. (laughs) 
And so I was writing a lot more often. And but I would be in these spaces with poets whose, you know, metaphors and similes and they were just so brilliant. And I was like, when I say the sky is blue, I just mean the sky is blue. I wasn't <laughs> even being deep. That really is my I'm just a storyteller. I'm just gonna tell it the way that I see it and experience it. And so that is inside of even my teaching. My teaching is just very literal. There's deep theory and praxis that is surrounding it, but it's just a very literal. And so one of the things that's been very profound for me in my own growth journey and my own learning journey is to just have language for something sometimes. It isn't even necessarily getting deep into the actual theory. It's just, here's the language for it. And so when you know, when you have the language for the fact that society is, you know, this androcentric, white male-centered society, and that it is intentionally built and designed that way, how profound is it for you to just know that, to just know this was not thinking about me when it was created, and it's still not thinking about me. And in fact, Everything that it is, is thinking about a way to support and to benefit this one particular group of people or this one particular idea. And that that really is kind of like the breakthrough for me around authority. It's this question of, actually, did we vote and say that white men were in charge? Because right. I didn't get to participate in that vote. And if other people decided that that's what they wanted to do, I want to divest from that. I want to divest from the idea that what I look like is you know, bound up in this one particular group of people's ideas of what is beauty and what is good and what is necessary and what is worthy. You know, I'm divesting from that. I don't agree with that. And so I'm not in agreement with anymore. And so, you know, we go down the list of all the things that, you know, you just mentioned and or all the things that are is a part of like our socialization, just having the language to realize that somebody decided that this is who was in charge, that these were the standards, that this is how you can become credible. And all these years later, in a lot of ways, we've continued to participate in it because of how deep our indoctrination is into those ideas. But to know it and then to question every single thing about it, like, wait, do I agree with this? Is this really what I believe about myself? I had this like season of my life where my thighs were a thing for me. My friends would be like, you never wear shorts. And I'd be like, you know, I would only wear shorts if I could wear pantyhose under my shorts because my thighs just are doing too much. But then I I would look at like Erica Badu's thighs or, you know, I would like see these other beautiful women's thighs that were thighs just like my thighs. And I'd be like, that's good. My thighs aren't good. How are they the exact same thighs? Right. <laughs> that, and, but these thighs are not good. And so it really was just having that. That, you know, again, just the literal, the sky is blue, the thighs are good, you know, right. that really helped me to be like, this is silly. This is silly that I'm hating this portion of myself on me, but not on other beings. And I just don't want to participate in that anymore. And so it's just this consistent kind of reprogramming. Every time I catch it, I'm like, that doesn't make sense, Ebony Janice. I would like to opt out of that. And over and over and over again, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect plan, right? But it's just the knowing of it that I didn't actually agree. I just was told to agree. And I have been actively participating in that because of my indoctrination. And now I want to, you know, reprogram my mind to think something else, to think that these are good thighs, you know, that this is a good body, that this is a good experience that I'm having, that this is a worthy skin, et cetera, et cetera. I love it. I mean, I, first of all, I love the word androcentric, which I haven't been using, but I'm going to start using. So yes. good. <laughs> but I also love what you're saying. I mean, I think a lot of my work is about that is like that is similar in the sense of like, I think what has been missing for a lot of people is like, okay, I understand the theory or the theory might be useful, <laughs> helpful intellectually, 
what am I doing with that on the day when I hate my thighs and I don't want to wear shorts, right? It's like understanding that patriarchy exists is not helping me feel confident. But what you're saying of like, first of all, just bringing that awareness, like mm-hmm. looking at how often you're questioning yourself, how often you are deferring, right? I think we're so socialized to question our own experiences and our own perceptions of the world, right? And how much we see. I mean, I just, I see this even in myself. Like I am the CEO of a multi-million dollar business. But when I think about who's the CEO of a multi-million dollar, I see like a 45-year-old white guy named Chad who's like playing golf. It's like, right, that's my mental image, even though literally, right, it's me. I am one. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, I mean, I love what you're saying. And I think that is something we talk about on this podcast a lot is the like simple thoughts, like the simple repetition of like- Over and over again, though. Over and over again. (laughs) Having these conversations is really important for people who are doing the work and maybe be one step ahead of you on your journey, right? To say to you, it was hard to get to this step because sometimes, particularly, you know, I call it a little self-help pamphlet, particularly you're reading a little self-help pamphlet and you think step one, and then you do that and it's easy. No, it's hard to get from step one to step two. It's like this consistent, I'm 40 years old. So think about me having a revelation of something at 40 and thinking that tomorrow I'm not going to be doing that anymore. I'm 40 right. years in the game at this. Right, right. So, right. so I have That's to- Neural patterns already. Yeah, like I have to be, you know, I fall down. I say really awful things to myself and about myself from times. I'm the James Baldwin says the house is on fire. We've all inhaled the smoke, right? Even the things that I don't believe about myself, I participate in it because this house is on fire. I've inhaled the smoke. So I can say on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday and Saturday, I love myself. I'm the greatest to ever do it, you know? And then Sunday morning, I'm like, I'm ashy and no one likes me. And it doesn't make any sense, but I'm 40 years into right. that idea and I have to just continue to practice it. And it is good for me. And I think it is good for others when we're honest about the fact that this journey is not easy and it's not overnight, but it's certainly worth it. Oh my God. Yes. You're singing my song. I'm always yeah. like, this is going to feel terrible for a while. Yeah. It's going to feel a little bit better at first, just a little bit. You got to keep going. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about one of the things that we also, I think, talk about quite a bit here is like, what is actually like wellness culture and what is actually transformative? And you talk in the book, you say you can't mani-pedi yourself into freedom. So you talk about wellness for Black women and girls and like what the kind of narrative is about that and what's problematic about it. Yeah, there's this movement right now for Black women in general called soft life. You know, Black women want and deserve a soft life. And I don't disagree with it. Soft life me down to the ground. Get back up and work it on down. But it's really also being conflated in a lot of ways with luxury living. And that is privileged language. You know, it's just everybody can't five-star resort their life. Everybody can't luxury spa. Everybody can't, you know, Chanel Gucci bag. You know, everybody can't take a month vacation to Bali. and. While I do think that those are all worthy, you know, aspirations, because if that's a thing that you want, then, you know, that's perfectly fine. But it's not going to actually regulate your nervous system long term, right? It's not going to actually, you know, help you be a more seated version of yourself. It's not going to give you satisfaction long term. And I hate to perform poverty, but I'm 
from poverty. You know, that certainly is my background, my upbringing. I'm from working class, certainly parents, but, you know, if there was a, you know, the bottom of the working class, ultimately. And coming from this background and now finally at this point in my life being in a place where I do have privilege of access to resources and, you know, the very least $27 in my bank account whenever I needed to be there. I look at this place where I do feel comfortable. I'm doing quote fingers, you know, comfortable financially to be able to say, you know, if I wanted to take a vacation tomorrow, I could take that vacation. And with that, there's a version of me who used to think if I had more money, then I would be happier. And then I got to my highest dream money goals and I met them and I was sitting there in that day, like, wait a minute, life is a raggedy bitch. I'm such a letdown. You get the thing you want and you're like, God damn it. I'm still me. And I'm (laughs) still me. I'm still sitting right here with my little self. And what am I going to do with this? You know? Uh And so even having those kind of conversations with my closest friends and my contemporaries who hadn't necessarily reached that you know, level of financial success at that point, it still is impossible. And and I'm certain that just hearing a little bit, knowing a little bit about your own work and your own journey, that no one believes you when you say- Not to go through it themselves. No one believes you when you say (laughs) that money didn't fix it. And in fact, there are a lot of things, you know, just maneuvering through my own family stuff that there were issues in my family that I thought if I could do this and support my family in this way, financially, everything will be good. And then nothing was good. I mean, (laughs) I mean, the mortgage was paid and, you know, people have food to eat and, you know, and so I don't want to minimize that that wasn't good, but the stuff, the thickness of it, the heaviness of it was still sitting right there. And I was sitting there like six figures down from, taking care of all these things. Like, wait, money didn't fix it. This is wild. And so I feel like that story of soft life is a very beautiful thing to aspire to. But I have introduced, particularly in this book, All the Black Girls Are Activists that I wrote, I've introduced the language of softness with the more in-depth definition of what softness, particularly for Black women, and girls would look like and would feel like. And it's really, again, about a regulated nervous system or regulating nervous system ongoing, that I'm not always existing with this level of anxiety or with fear or with trepidation or, you know, feeling like I need to get up. I call it being seated, meaning like, what does it feel like when you're actually fully seated in yoga? You know, there's like this particular posture where you're all the way down and you're on your butt and you're, right, you your know, tailbone's you're like down on the ground. And you're completely there and your shoulders are down. What would it look like and feel like if we got to exist and create and imagine and dream from that place versus from this place of like resistance or preparedness for fight or for struggle or for hustle? And so I'm wondering inside this book, I'm contemplating this, I'm, you know, giving some supporting stories that I've experienced on my own and suggesting that there is the work of wellness is certainly a part of our resistance. Not just that my nails are done and that I got a good facial today, which is important, you know, do those things, but also that I've done the work to know what my home frequency feels like, to know what it feels like when I am a fully seated version of myself. So anytime I'm triggered from that place or anytime something attempts to trigger me from that place, I can recognize it 
and I have tools to bring me back to my seat. And that is what soft living feels like for me and feels important. Like this wellness journey, this actual, like I want to actually get to be Ebony Janice seated and not Ebony Janice that's always in hustle, panic, grind, run, go fight mode. And that is a, you know, conversation around justice is a very real thing because there are groups of people who get to exist in their vulnerability and that vulnerability isn't used against them. But those of us who have been marginalized in, you know, very violent ways and stories that are created about who it is that we are, we don't get to exist from that place. So the decision to exist there and to do that work and to, you know, invite people into that reality is is certainly radical and revolutionary as well. Oh my God, there's like so many, I should have been taking notes. There's like so many oh. things I want to talk about from what you said. And just first of all, 100% amen to all of it. Like, I think I came from the opposite end of, I mean, not fabulously wealthy, but like we had plenty of money, comfort, right? And my family wasn't like insanely wealthy, but because my grandfather was a doctor and he was the dean of NYU medical school, he knew a lot of insanely wealthy people, right? And if you grow up around that, you're like, money does not make you happy. Like, it obviously being able to take care of your basic needs is super important for nervous system stabilization, mm-hmm. right? Like food, shelter, of course. But you can be on that month long vacation to Bali. And if you like married someone who doesn't really respect you and who you don't really love because society told you you had to get married and you're stressed out the whole time about how you look in your bathing suit, you know, like that's not soft. You're not having that experience. And there's like such, a, I've not, I have not yet been able to articulate this in a way that like I feel like really gets it, but there's something about, the irony of capitalism is what teaches us that money is the most important thing, right? And then there's something that happens in, and I say this as somebody who, you know, was a social justice, am a social justice person, and I was a reproductive rights litigator before I became an academic, before I, you know, so from within, like, as somebody who, that was my whole identity for a long time, there's like, something that happens around the like, fixation around money as the sort of problem and solution to everything that feels like it's actually replicating what capitalism is teaching us, which is that money is the main thing as opposed to what you're talking about, which is like, what is true wellness? What's the point of all of this Mm -hmm. if you are in a stress response all the time? I think that's the point of, you know, capitalism, this institution, this idea is so brilliant (laughs) (laughs) that it it even tricks us. I've been in a, in a romance novel era, like, Mm -hmm. It's the only thing I'm doing with my life. Right reading now. or living or writing reading. or okay. I mean, what I'm living, but you know, a little bit, but not not fully in my romance novel era. I'm working on it. But no, reading romance novels. And it's funny because I, you know, come from this anti-racism education background and the only thing I was reading was like critical race theory and right, you know, right. oppression. And yeah. then I I casually joked about like, I can't wait till I'm just reading romance novels and thug passion all day long. And then a couple years later, I don't, I know what happened, but that's a podcast for another day. Okay. I just, I just rolled over into my romance novel era and I was mm-hmm. like, the only thing I want to do with my life is read romance novels. Mm-hmm. Why did I go there? I don't even know why I got there. It's just my life's work is to bring romance novels into every conversation now. But no, I'm saying that because like leaning over into talking about it so much more, like talking about romance novels, everybody's like, when are you going to write a romance novel? And I'm like, like that is how insidious mm-hmm. capitalism mm-hmm. is. Right. You got to like monetize your Yeah, your you got to do something with this. Yeah. You got to turn this into something. And I'm like, 
I just want to read it. Right. So I don't want, I like to eat good food. I don't want to work in a restaurant. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's nothing you can't, you can't even enjoy anything. That yeah. Even when people see you just enjoying something, there's something that is programmed in us to think, how can I make this something? And not that there's anything in our lives that is just for us. It's not for anything else. It's not for anybody else. This is literally just for me. At some point, I may actually do something with romance novels because, I really am in my romance novel here. It's mm-hmm. a real, real thing. I may talk about it publicly more consistently. I may, you know, I love learning about the history, particularly of Black romance. And I love it. I really have been enjoying it. But more than anything, I've just been enjoying it. And so, but I think that that, again, like that is the brilliance of capitalism, you know, as this global power, you know, it's like, do something, you know, commodify this. How do we turn this into yeah. something? How can we make this benefit other people and not just that our wellness, what does it look like and what would it feel like? It goes back to the beginning of this conversation. What if our wellness was just for us? The th- right. You know, what if this was just about me? What if I wasn't trying to get well so that I could heal generations of my family? Yeah. You know, what if I was just trying to get well so that I could just be well? The benefit is other people are well when I'm well. But the benefit also is and first is I'm well and I'm well. And, right, that- and that's so important because otherwise you're just replicating what society does, which is treat you as a utilitarian yes. mm-hmm. function of serving other people. How do people. you benefit us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. I saw this. I have to say, like, I think I had some skepticism about romance novels because of my own shit, like because of my own, the socialization I got around, like in my life, dating was always the thing I had the most trouble with and all the socialization around that. So it was like, oh, well, those, you know, makes you think that romance and sex are the most important things in the world, blah, blah, blah. And then I actually saw a tweet that blew my mind. It's not often Twitter gives me a feminist awakening. Like, I feel like I did a lot of study to get here. But I saw a tweet that was like, of course, romance novels are disparaged because like, it's a book that's predictable where happy things happen to women, yeah. like where they're not being like murdered and brutalized for high art or being, you know, like, it's just nice. You know, it's going to work out and she's going to get laid and live happily ever after. And I was like, which is, okay. which is the good life, which is right? what I was put here for. <laughs> the soft life I want. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, and it really, it seems so silly, but the reason why I got into the romance novel era is because I actually was coming to the end of a very beautiful relationship there was no drama. He just was moving to a country that the U.S. wouldn't even give me a visa for. So there's that. <laughs> so he's moving back home where he's from originally. And to keep my heart soft, I accidentally happened upon, I was randomly in Paris at the time. All of the stories random. So I will keep it very brief. But I was. But this a, feels like a romance novel. You're in Paris. No, your lover has it, to leave. It's so dramatic. <laughs> honestly, he's a French speaking black man. It's just the most the dramatic story ever. It really is. There's crying on the corner of Rue Saint Dominique. Obviously, a beautiful in building story. in the background. Really, it's a true story. But so he leaves. Uh-huh. He goes back to his country, and I'm in Paris for the month. And I'm supposed to be writing a book at the time. And I'm just like, I want to write this book. I just want to read about love. So I happened upon this romance novel and I start listening to them. And then it just becomes this thing like to keep myself from feeling like love is awful because I didn't have this awful breakup. It just was really sad that it came to its end to keep my heart soft. And so it's like even romance novels is really like this tool that I have been using to keep me seated so that I don't harden, so that I don't become like thug life. I don't, men are just going to leave you. I don't want to yeah, feel that yeah. way. You know, I want to. That's wanna... such an important point. It's like, because that softness is also our, like, it's hard to be soft when what you experience, obviously, is discrimination and oppression and marginalization. Like, 
it's a normal, natural reaction to like harden for self-protection, yes, yes. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, what would real wellness look like? Is it like being in your hard, like carapace, but in Bali, or is it being able to, as you said, be vulnerable, be soft and learn how to like, yes, protect yourself and have the boundaries you need, but mm-hmm. not, yeah, be so And to shut, carry yeah. that with me everywhere too, because even inside of that, like I can still do hard things from my soft place. Mm-hmm, totally. Every time I have to get up out of my softness and create a boundary or fight. And those things are reality. I have to do those things, but doing it from my softness so that my body still feels like my own mm-hmm. when it's all over. You think about how it feels when after you got to cuss somebody out. You don't yeah. even feel good anymore, even if you won the argument. Right. You're all dysregulated and you don't yes. know how to calm down. Yes. I haven't mastered this, of course, because life, but I, I want to know what it feels like to say and do really hard things from my seat. And I bring up, you know, like, who are my softness icons and archetypes who've said and done really hard things, but as a seated version, most seated version of themselves. And I bring Toni Morrison always into that conversation because Toni Morrison could like get you together like that. But just with this, look at you, you know, if someone else has to be on their knees in order for you to be tall, what do you have but your little self? You know, it's like, Toni Morrison sitting back chilling, yeah, you know, talking about racism and really hard things, but as herself in herself, and then probably went home and took a nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the process is like, I think, getting better at returning to softness when you do get right. And I think we're using softness in a lot of different ways, but here we mean sort of like a regulated nervous system. Like, I mean, I, one of the things I see happen in wellness culture is that people are like, think that the goal is to be like, always perfectly regulated, which is just like saying your goal is like never feel negative emotion, not realistic, right? And you need your flight or fight. You don't want to be so regulated that you like walk in the street and the bus is coming at you and you're like, oh, and then you get hit by the bus. Like you need your nervous system to get you out of there. But being able to come back to that. And I mean, I definitely can feel, you know, in my own body, what does it feel like when I'm able to approach a difficult conversation or a challenging thing from like, I'm grounded versus I'm like flying, right? You say that all Black girls are activists. Can you tell us a little bit more about speaking of those kind of the hard things or the challenges? Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. All the Black girls are activists is really just this simple statement that showing up as ourselves in a world that doesn't want anything to do with us actually being ourselves is radical and revolutionary. And if the Black girls don't do nothing else but show up as ourselves, we have done quite a bit of work. And that, too, is our very relevant, incredible contribution to revolution. And that's so important because there's so much, especially if you care about social justice, you care about revolution or whatever that, you know, people have different ideas of what that's going to be. But there is this sort of like, okay, well, the cause is what matters. So put your personal things aside, right? And they're like inextricably linked, right? Just doing that work to show up as yourself when you're told never to be yourself and that you don't matter is a powerful political act, but I feel like that's like missing from a lot of the dialogue around this stuff. The body is a political site. Mm -hmm. You know, our identities are inherently political. We didn't decide that it was going to be that, you know, but it just, from every way that you can think about it, from an economic, from a, you know, political, from a, you know, spiritual, religious like from all these directions, the body is a political site. You know, I've talked about having like this very spiritual, religious background. 
And so I've studied theology, but multi-faith, you know, religions. And so prior to my theological shift, my background is Christianity. And so I, I, I really love Jesus. So I like to bring Jesus into the conversation. Jesus, you know, in a crystal centric society, the way that we're taught about Jesus is really watered down. You know, we don't think about Jesus as this radical revolutionary, you know, being who was an activist, you know, and his body then became this political site at which point they took him because of his politics, because of his political belief. They took him and put his body on display in order to say, don't do this because this is what could happen to your body if you are against the systems, these ideas, whatever, whatever. And that's not how we talk about Jesus. And that's not how we talk about crucifixion. And that's not how we talk about, you know, the life of Christ as it very deeply invested in the wellness of people, of, you know, people having food to eat, people you know, not paying taxes that were not going to actually benefit them, right? And so I will bring Jesus as both, you know, the Christ for many people and as a character for a lot of other people into the conversation because he's such a famous example of the fact that the body is inherently political. And so that's what happens to all of us. If you are fat, your body is a political site. If you have a uterus, your body is a political site. If you have skin that is darker than what is a certain proximity to whiteness, your body is a political site. So it is impossible. If you have any kind of disability and this world will disable you in all the ways possible, you know, because we live and exist in this ableist society, if you are a human being living in New York City, right, which I think is one of my favorite cities in the world, but one of the most disabling cities ever, you know? Yeah. And very like, non-accessible. Especially yeah. That's, that's what I mean. Like even as a reasonably able-bodied person, when I lived in New York city, I had to recognize my own disabilities. UPS is not always bringing my 50 plus pound box right. up the stairs <laughs> to my door. Right. So I have to do and even though that's what I paid for delivery right. to my home. My home is not the lobby. Please right. bring this box to me. But now I have to figure out how to take this 60-pound box up three flights of stairs. Right. This is a very disabling, you know, experience that I'm having. And so my body, no matter what, there's something political about that. So to try to excuse or absolve yourself of it is inherently impossible because there's something, no matter what your identity is, your background, your race, your, you know, whatever, there is something about you that this society has said, mm, not making space for it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the religious element. I think that's something that I talk about my religious background on the podcast lot. I'm Jewish, but I think definitely this is a thing that like I had somebody in my in membership group, the clutch the other day say, she's like, do you have to be atheist in here? And I was like, but hilariously, she was like, I'm looking forward to like the Christian subgroup meeting later. And I was like, well, I think you just answered your own question because there's a Christian subgroup. So no, you don't have to be <laughs> atheist. But there is this sort of, I think people struggle. I, I definitely have seen a lot of, I was gonna say for whatever reason, but actually for many reasons, that would be another whole podcast. Life coaching, I think in particular, gets a lot of people who, for instance, came from high demand religions are kind of looking for a new way of being a new set of rules, which is like, not what I provide, but that's what they think before they come in that, you know, I'm going to now tell them what to do. And so I think, but I've seen people go through this journey of struggle a lot of like trying to take their faith and take it through this revolution, personal revolution they're experiencing where they're really questioning a lot of the patriarchal, white supremacist, kind of everything else systems that they were taught in their religion and like what to do about their faith or how to navigate that when they're doing that deprogramming. So I wonder if you could speak to kind of 
that experience and, and what your thoughts are about it. Yeah. I talk about softness so much because I'm using it in relationship again with this, you know, the regulating of the nervous system and or even language of home frequency. I know what it feels like when I'm actually home in my body. You know, I am here. I'm present. This is Ebony Janice, actually. And I think that this is important even in the conversation about, you know, how do I do this growing, evolving, healing, transformative work and be in right relationship, I'm doing quote fingers, right relationship with my God or, you know, with the religion of my youth or, the, you know, this thing that I've ascribed to. What I believe is that at which point I really understood my seed itself as the truth, as the gospel, like that my body is now a part of sacred text. The same way that I would read the Bible and be like, oh, this is the guide for me. This is showing me the way to go. That there is something divine like that's the brilliance of the divine, in my opinion. And you know what I believe? There's something divine about me as me that knows the truth. And so there are times when I, I've spent high six figures in coaching, therapy, programs, healing, all the things, yeah. all the things. I've buried myself. I have resurrected. I have plant medicine. I've done all the mm. things. So I've been, you know, deeply in this journey. And there are times when I will walk into an experience with a leader or a teacher or a coach and something that they say, it just doesn't resonate with seated Ebony Janice. And it doesn't resonate with what my belief system is overall. And so I bring all of those things into this space, the brilliance and wisdom of this teacher, this elder, whatever. I bring seated Ebony Janice into this space. How does seated Ebony Janice feel about that? And then I bring the teaching of, you know, whatever my religious truth system is or my spiritual truth system is. And I try to see if any of them align. I do that same, the same thing with my religion too, though. There are things inside right. of the religion of my youth where I'm like, no, thank you. No. <laughs> I don't know if this actually, there's a queer a theologian. Her name is Zan West. Zan West says, we should always be asking the question, who does it benefit of religion, particularly who does it benefit for me to believe it this way? Mm. And that okay. is like just the, you know, how Wait, I. That's true for all of your thoughts, people. Like the people yeah. listening to the podcast who are not religious at all. All the thoughts you have about yourself, about who you're mm -hmm. supposed to be, who does it benefit for who you to believe that? And it's profound, again, going earlier in this conversation, talking about how deeply socialized we are. It's profound to realize that the majority of my casual thoughts never benefit me. You know, like right. that stuff. Like, it's just like I, walking around in clothes that never fit, hand-me-downs yeah. that don't work for you. Mm -hmm, like you mm -hmm. just think it's normal. You don't even know there's clothes out there that like you like that would fit, that would look mm -hmm, good mm -hmm. because you're just wearing scratchy overalls that someone gave you that don't even yeah, fit. Yeah, I think that that certainly is the benefit, though, of doing the work of actually always asking those questions mm -hmm. and interrogating the self. And, you know, I love the idea of morning pages, you know, just doing the deep brain dump of like, these are my actual thoughts. This is how I'm feeling. This is what's on my mind. And the the morning pages are so random. It's like grocery shopping list and <laughs> and I'm horny and, right. you know, <laughs> everything that's going on up there. Just it's everything. <laughs> because I don't necessarily even know that we are actually taught to really create time in our day to just think our own thoughts. Totally. And if I give myself time at least once a day, I give myself more than once, yeah. once a day to think about my own thoughts at this point. But in the beginning of this journey, it's like there is the, this set aside time every day where I just think about what I'm thinking about. And how profound it was for me to discover 
so much about myself that I didn't know about myself because I'm in this productive go, 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 grind, grind, grind culture. I never knew that I I should probably sit down and think about what it is that I'm just subconsciously thinking about so that I can even go and deal with those things. So my in conclusion to all that, if there were one, is just that I do think, you know, coming into these spaces where you do have a, I like the language of high demand religion, where you do come from a background of a high demand religion you know, where there is like a set of rules and ideas and values that are kind of dictating who it is that you get to be. And then you come into some information or some ideas that don't necessarily jive with that is to be able to bring all of those beings into that space and ask the question as your actual seat itself, is this actually benefiting me for me to continue to believe this? Would it benefit me at the very least to be open to this conversation? And is there anything in me? This is what I say. My background is I'm a preacher. And so I sometimes lie about closing my sermon, but I really am coming to the end of this sermon. I have a dog. His name is Puppy. He's 13. And he's a little old man. And he doesn't make any noise. He's sitting behind me right now. He's just like the quietest dog on the planet. And to the point that he doesn't bark. And people have asked me, did I get his voice box removed? Because he doesn't make any noise ever. I've had him since he was a baby. He doesn't make noise. But when he does make noise, it's just this. Mm. That's it. It's hilarious. And he's it's a running joke about the fact that the dog doesn't make any noise. And so... When I first started noticing this, when I first got him, because I never had a dog before this dog, I got him in a breakup grill. I wasn't trying to, but anyways, so I never had a dog before I had puppy and I would hear this little, and I'd be like, what is he doing? And then a couple minutes later, somebody would knock at the door or I would hear that little, and then somebody would be coming, you know, some kids running down the street, always like a couple minutes later. Like, how does he know that somebody's coming to the door before I can even see anybody coming to the door? You know, the language of your instinct or your gut or, you know, all of that has been in relationship with like your guard dog, right? Mm-hmm. But you think about a guard dog and you think it's going to be barking and making all this mm-hmm. noise. No, the guard dog is usually puppy LaFoy Ivy Kardashian. Mm-hmm. It usually sounds like, mm. And learning how to like really just, you know, pay attention to that mm, and trust it like it is the gospel. So in the times when somebody, when the scripture is saying something that makes me feel, mm, you know, I want to pay attention to that. When this coach or this idea or this teacher, you know, or this philosopher is saying something that makes me feel, mm, I'm learning to pay attention to that because I'm always listening for, again, my body as like this divine you know, technology that knows something more than I know down the street. It knows it some kind of way. And so I'm in the practice at the very least of learning to trust that. I love that. That mm, reminds me of the conversation on Toni Morrison. Uh-huh. She would just be like, mm. <laughs> and that would be like her whole, <laughs> yeah, yeah, play yeah. A whole long thing. And she'd be like, mm. this is beautiful. I mean, I think that brings us right back to sort of where we started, which is a beautiful closing point, which is that like learning to listen to and trust your own authority. And there's such a, I have an episode of this of my podcast called No Gods, No Gurus, because like when you come from a high demand religion, what it's done, I mean, and obviously many people listen to this podcast who didn't come from high demand religions. I'm just saying like, and a lot of ways patriarchy is a high demand religion, right? It's just like undercover, like so is white supremacy. It's like, it basically requires 
Actually, that's true. I hadn't said that before, but I think that that's, that's true. That's good. Yeah, it is. For sure. <laughs> like, all right, we're doing another podcast about that later. But it like has the same set of like a whole set of norms you have to follow, ways you have to be. It tells you who's in charge. It tells you what to do with your time. It tells you what you're allowed to believe. You have to spend a lot of time following the precepts. And you worship it. And you, right. and you, and you try to like conform, mm-hmm. like be good enough to like mm-hmm. receive favor, right? And then when you have to find some connection to your own authority. And I love that you talk about the body as the site for that because – even if you're not spiritual or religious, you don't have to think about it as divinity, but it's the same process of your body is that barometer for like what thoughts resonate with you, what thoughts are going to work for you, how do you want to feel? Like it's the only thing that you can really tune into and know for yourself. So, and that's such a like decentralized authority, which is completely opposite to like that system we're living. It's so good. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they buy your book? Let's give them the whole book title again. Like tell yes. them all the things. I wrote a book. It's called All the Black Girls Are Activists, A Fourth Wave Womanist Pursuit of Dreams is Radical Resistance. And you can find it at alltheblackgirlsareactivists.com. Really the easiest way to find me is just yeah, yeah. at Ebony Janice everywhere. Okay. At Ebony Janice, yeah. And wherever books are sold, I assume. Wherever. All the places that books are sold. It's there, yeah. Go buy the book. We didn't even get to talk about womanism versus feminism. We have to come back another time. And I just am very excited that this podcast title is going to be like Authority and Romance Novels. (laughs) I'm here for it. I'm here for it. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Hey, hey, before you skip to the next episode or close your podcast app, God forbid, don't forget to sign up for Feminist Summer School. We are going through Feminist Summer School inside the clutch during the month of August. If you join the clutch by July 31st, you not only get all the incredible tools and resources and practices in the clutch to teach you to create any outcome you want in your life, to feel more self-confident, to get rid of your family drama, to get that promotion or that raise, to reach that impossible goal, to love your body, to enjoy dating, to have better sex, to heal your nervous system, whatever you want to do, the clutch is going to help you do it. But when you join by July 31st, you also get to participate in Feminist Summer School, which is our incredible series of bonus trainings on fun and joy and pleasure, live workshops where you can learn how to reclaim the fun of summer without all of that socialization in your brain, dragging you down, making you feel insecure or guilty or overwhelmed or busy, all of those things that get in the way of that true summer vibe. And when you learn how to change your thoughts, you can actually ride that breezy summer feeling all year long, just using your mind. We're going to have fun challenges. We're even going to have recess because we love a theme and we commit to our thought work, to our themes, to everything. So come join us. Text your email to plus one three four seven nine three four eight eight six one. Again, you text your email to plus one three four seven nine three four eight eight six one or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash summer.